0: All right, good morning, everybody. This morning, if you'll turn your Bibles to Psalm 60, 61, and 62. That's our hope, or that's my ambition this morning. We'll see how far we get. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and that you've allowed us to gather together um, just to worship you in song and in prayer and in fellowship, but also in, in the breaking of the bread of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to receive everything you have for us this morning, Um, We know David's heart is laid out and open on these pages for us to learn from. In fact, this first one, Lord, is called a mictum. It's a a teaching psalm. And so, Lord, help us to hear for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Very important psalms, uh, these three. Um, Several reasons. Psalm 60 is called a mictum, which means it's a teaching psalm. It's meant to teach the well, the current folks, to remind them of what they've gone through, but also for the next generation to know that they can trust in God just like David's trusted in the Lord. What we find interesting in this, I think, this first one is that um, it, it speaks of a, a, a loss, a military loss, that isn't documented in Scriptures. Now, I try not to read too much into it, but it is hard not to notice that um, we like to talk about our victories, You know, in our life, in our walk with Jesus, but to talk about our failures is something that maybe we'll talk about if we're asked. It isn't necessarily something that we volunteer. And David volunteers this information for us because it's not documented. the 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 section of Scripture that's the victory side is Second Samuel chapter eight or First Chronicles 18 that shows the winning that happens after this prayer, after this return to God. But David documents here in the Psalms and lets them know, no, it wasn't like that before the victory we lost. We didn't do so well before the great win that everybody likes to write about and talk about and go over. Wasn't that great win, that one time win, you know? This is the loss. And I think that's important for us to see, to read, to understand in our own walk that although there are many victories in our lives, sometimes those victories come right after a loss that we had. I want everybody to think the best of me, you know. Um, I want my kids to think the best of me. I want my wife to think I'm the greatest. Mostly true. But they see the failures in my life, and those have to be acknowledged. We have to bring those up and talk about those things because they're going to have failures. We've talked about this before. If my kids don't see me come to God in my failures and ask for forgiveness and to receive that forgiveness from Him, to For my kids to see that repentance in my life, they need to see that because they're going to run into those same situations. And if they don't learn that from me, um, well, they may go on in their pride and that just gets worse. So this first Psalm, David writes about a wonderful victory that happened against the Edomites in the Valley of Salt, but also talks about the, the failure that took place before that. Oh God, you've cast us off. You've broken us down. You've been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You've made the earth tremble. You've broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You've shown your people hard things. You've made us drink the wine of confusion. David here lets the Lord know that he wants to come back to him, that the whole nation wants to come back to him. He tells us in this teaching psalm that they weren't as close to God well, as everybody thought Israel was. And it was because of their lack of fellowship or their closeness to God that caused this failure. David acknowledges that at the height of his power, at the pinnacle of of Israel's strength, they lose this battle. It doesn't make sense. It's not that the Edomites got stronger. It's not that the enemies of God all of a sudden had a a burst of energy. It was that God didn't go to battle with them. And David recognizes that. See, David's never thought that it was always his strength or his strategy that gave them victory in Israel. He did the work. He prepared the horses. He prepared the men for battle. You know, you do what you need to do, but he always knew the victories came from God. And so when the loss happened, he describes it as the earth was broken. It was earth shattering to us. This is unbelievable. This doesn't happen to us. Israel doesn't lose unless God's not with us. I like that that's David's default. I want that to be my default. I want to go through my day and realize, you know what? I feel confused. I feel foggy. I don't feel like things are falling together. It's not God's fault. What did I do? Where's my heart? Where's my mind? How was my prayer time? Where was my quiet time? What scripture spoke to my heart? Oh, yeah. Didn't have quiet time. Didn't have prayer time. Been distant from the Lord lately. David says that you've cast us off. Well, not completely, or else he wouldn't be praying this prayer. But you have broken us down to the place of repentance. When we ask for God to break people in our lives, you know, um, bring them to their lowest point so that they can return to God. That's the point. That's what 1 Corinthians 1, when they told uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, the first, the the, the, the idea that That boy needed to leave and be turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh was all designed for 2 Corinthians when they said, now bring him back lest he be swallowed up with too much grief. David understands that. This this temporary loss, although devastating and earth-shattering and shocking to us, showed us where we were with you, God, and caused me to write this song and to pray this prayer. I want you to restore us again. Um, I want you to repair the breaches Um, You've shown us the hard things. I mean, isn't that why we come? I want to be encouraged as much as anybody else. I like the plaques they sell at Hobby Lobby. I do. I do. You know, I do want to live, laugh, and love. I mean, maybe not as much as they try to sell it to me, but I do like to do those three things, you know. But I also want God to show me the hard things. I don't want to ever coast with the Lord. I want to always pedal. And that's what he finds here. God, we were coasting. We were not focused on you. Something happened to the point where you had to show us these hard things. You've made us drink of the wine of confusion. I mean, that was a disaster. I mean, David, who's watched his team, let's turn it into sports a little bit, really nail it pull together and win like a winning team should do. There was chemistry on the battlefield that day, you know, like that. And then you go out the very next game, and you're like, where were we? Where were our heads at, the coach would say, maybe at halftime. Where's your heads at? Get in the game. Focus. You know, you can see it. David, after the battle, says, we look like a bunch of drunken fools out there. We were confused. That guy wasn't even playing the right trumpet tune. That's why we all ran left, you know, instead of right, like we should have. We fumbled. David understands that and calls God out and asks him to restore him. He says in verse 4, You've given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. David knows he's still beloved. He doesn't ever question that. I like the fact that David doesn't sit there and say, Well, we tried you, God, and you didn't meet us on this battlefield. We're going to try a different God. David knows there's no other God to go to. If I find myself in a losing battle, I need to get closer to the one who created me, not further away or try something new. And so he goes back to this old truth that he understands in his heart. I'm beloved. And that that implies that I know that my request to be restored to you is something that you want too, God, because I'm beloved by you. Of course. Of course you want this. But I know that I need to do these things. The banner. The banner. Um, the first time this word's used, and you want to do that when you study the Bible, when's the first time banner was used? It was used when uh, they were fighting. Joshua was fighting on the battlefield, and Moses had his hands in the air, and Aaron and her had to come alongside of him and hold his arms up. And it was that at that point they called God for the first time jehovah Myra, which means God is our banner. Banner. And so when David uses this reference, he understands that. I need you to, the, the, the battles that we've always won, whether that was Moses back in the day where even Joshua was a mighty warrior, but if, our, if Moses' hands fell, they lost. And only when his hands were up worshiping God did they win. That was a, that was a teaching moment for the entire nation to learn that the victories you're going to have from here on out have to do with me on the battlefield, not with you and your excellent strategies. David says, you've given us this banner, jehovah Myra. I want that. And we want to raise that up. Verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. This is a quote David says from God. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my wash pot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Felicia shout in triumph because of me. It goes through a bunch of nations. The idea here is, it's all mine. Still. You know, we talk about Israel being given the promised land. Well, sort of. They're more like tenants. All the people that were driven out before Israel got to occupy that land, they were tenants too, but they didn't walk with the Lord. And so they were driven out. And Israel was given, well, their opportunity, but they're still renters. And God makes sure they know that. This land is mine. I divided it up. I, I'm, I meet it out to whoever I see fit. I give Shechem to Shechem, I give Gilead to Gilead, Judah, you know, and Ephraim, those guys are great. Moab, they're nothing but a wash pot to me. And he goes on. David quotes that because that's who beat him. The wash pot beat the lawgiver and the helmet. He knows that doesn't make sense. He knows that's not right. He knows that Moab's being used by God, although an ungodly nation still being used as a teachable moment for Israel. They're a tool in God's hands. They haven't suddenly come to know the Lord and followed him. They're just tools. Now, bringing this home, I don't want to always apply the text to our lives for you, but it's kind of hard. Sometimes you wonder why the enemies in your life win. Well, it's not that God all of a sudden has a special affection for them. You know, um, if they're adversaries of Jesus Christ and the gospel, just because they won doesn't mean that there's some special affection. You know, I'll try not to make too much of a political point right now. But you could just because they won doesn't mean that God's all of a sudden on their team. There's something being taught if we perk our ears up and listen and pay attention. David understands that. So that's why he cries out, verse 9, Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble. For the help of a man is useless. Though through God we will do valiantly. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. He knows that. These are promises. The battle belongs to the Lord, we say. I want you to notice something about that phrase, and we need to be careful how we use that in our walk with Jesus. We like that. The battle belongs to the Lord, but that does not mean we sit in our lazy boys and flip up the recliner and sit back and wait for him to do something. It's not what he's called us to do at all. Several scriptures. Second 2 Chronicles 20.15 says the battle is the Lord's Proverbs 21, 31, Ephesians 6, 2, um, 1 Samuel 17, 47, all say the same thing. The battle is the Lord's. But in these last two, that Proverbs and that Ephesians one, he says, they readied the horses. Still readied the horses. We still had to go out into the battle. David didn't just sit back and say, don't worry, Saul. Goliath will fall. Here's the popcorn, you know. No, David went out and picked five smooth stones. He went out on the battlefield. He had to swing and sling. He had to follow through with the battle. It was the Lord's battle to win, but David still needed to be on the field, and I think we do too. Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We love that verse, but we have to understand we're still wrestling. We don't wrestle against flesh. He's just telling us what our opponent is. It's not flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against that, but we are wrestling Against spiritual, against principalities. Spiritual things, that's what we're wrestling against. So that means we gotta wrestle. We don't just sit back and let things happen and see what happens. Oh, it'll all work out in the end. No. That's what was happening in Israel. That's why they were paralyzed in that battle against the Philistines with Goliath standing out there mocking them every day. You know, you remember how many days he did that? Was it 30 or 40 days he was doing that? Every single day he comes out and says, Does anybody wanna fight? And I don't know who's praying in their tents. No, the battle belongs to the Lord. Well, that's not a—that's a cop out. At that point, we're going to sit in our tents because this is God's battle. You know. Mm-mm. No, David heard it and says, "Why is this guy still breathing? Why aren't you guys out there? Be quiet." They said. Felt that conviction. We have a responsibility as Christians to wage war. Spiritually speaking, we're called to that. We don't get to sit back and say, well, it's all going to be what it's going to be. What a horrible, what a horrible thing we've come up with when we made that phrase. It is what it is. That's terrible. Then make it not that anymore. That's our responsibility. We're called to that. I tried to post something the other day on our Facebook page, the word abdicate, give the definition of it, and then put the scripture with it out of revelation that we're called and made kings and priests. And the idea was to put those two together. Have we given up what God has given us to do as Christians? We we walk around defeated a lot of times. I'm not saying we, you, but um, we can find ourselves hanging our heads low and walking around as if we're defeated, as if we're not the kings and priests that God's made us to be on this earth, that we don't have authority and the ability to wrestle, to fight, to, to do what's right, to not sit back and say, it is what it is. No, it's, it's our job to do that. Though God, or through God, sorry, I don't want to keep saying that, through God, we will do valiantly. But we still have to do valiantly. It's just God's going to do it. But we're going to be out there valiant. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies with us, is the idea. With us, out there. Psalm 61 This is another one. We're not exactly sure when this was, except we believe this is about the time that Absalom tried to take over the throne. Absalom is David's son. If you don't know this story, Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul decided not to be obedient to God anymore. God says, "You're done being king." Saul would not give up his throne, although God had told him to. David was raised up to take over as a tiny shepherd boy. And through that Goliath story and so on was his ascent to that throne eventually, even after he was chased by Saul and so on. Now we're at the stage where Absalom, David's son, has come along and not been given it by God, but believes he can usurp his dad's authority and take the throne from his father. So David is on the run because nobody wants to kill their kid. So David leaves, and the idea is, if God wants me to be on the throne, he'll put me back there. If he doesn't, I don't want to be like Saul. And so David, with a humble heart, knowing he's made mistakes, takes off. God circles him back around. Absalom ends up dying. But these psalms are during this time period. It's a wonderful book called Tale of Three Kings. And I've mentioned it several times, but it's a wonderful book to get that into our hearts. Anybody that wants to be in ministry, I believe, should read that. Anybody. Anybody. Even if you're just thinking about it or thinking God might move you in that direction, you need to read that. Because you can have any one of those three hearts. You can either have Saul's heart. I deserve it. You know? You can either have David's heart. I'm humble, broken, if God wants me there, fine. You could have Absalom's heart. You have way too much ambition to the point where you usurp authority that God hasn't given you. And it's a wonderful passage, uh, a book that describes these, this situation that we're reading about here. So David is writing probably on the run, we believe. We don't know for sure, but probably on the run. And he says this, verse 1, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That should remind you of a song that we sing. There is a song after this psalm. David asked, God, not only do I want you to hear my prayer, but I want you to attend to it, which I kind of stuck. It stuck in me as I was reading it. Because to attend is to say, I expect an answer. I want an answer. I'm waiting for an answer. Or I won't stop praying until I have an answer. The Pharisees and all, and they were content with their prayers. The fact that they offered the prayer was enough. Regardless of the answer, they didn't wait around to see if God spoke to them or anything. They offered the prayer. That was their piety. That was it. Look at me. You know, David's not like that. I don't want a prayer that way. I don't want to do... we can turn that in, in our Christianese, in our in our walk with each other. We can turn that phrase, I'll pray for you, into something like that. As if the fact that I said I would pray for you all of a sudden elevated me in the conversation. And whether I do or not, how wonderful am I that I said I'd pray for you. And the, we already give gratitude. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you. you know, I'm all for praying for people, but let's pray in expectation of an answer and ask God to attend. I want to hear something. I want a yes, no, or maybe. You can obviously answer any way you want, God, but I want to hear from you. The prayer itself isn't any good. By itself, for the sake of the prayer is what I mean. I'll try to give you an example. I don't know if any of you have kids or if you've had kids and you've had the mom, 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 that moment. Or the dad, dad, hey, dad, dad, dad. See, when my kids need me, (laughs) they expect an answer from me. And they don't stop saying my name till I look at them and say, what is it? You know? And it's usually exactly like that, you know. It'd be weird if they were in the basement and they needed my help and they said, Dad, well, I tried. You know, how weird. It doesn't even make sense. But our relationship with God ought to be like that. And sometimes we may sound like that to him. I don't know. Or we can even hear ourselves saying, I know. I've heard people pray this too. God, I know I prayed this before, but I'm praying it again, you know. It's almost like you can hear yourself saying, dad, 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 you know? I know you got a lot of stuff going on, (laughs) running the world and all, the whole universe and all, but, you know, I think God likes that. I don't think he's like me. He doesn't respond like I do. What is it, you know? I want to pray like my little kids try to get my attention. I expect God to answer it. I can't move forward until they listen to me, hear what I have to say, and tell me my next steps. That's what I want from my dad. I don't have anybody else to ask. I think David's at that place. I am on the run. I'm on the ends of the earth. Now, he's not. He's on the edges of Israel. But as far as he's concerned, all he can see are sinners as far as he can see, you know? Not that there weren't any in Israel, but you get my point. There's nothing but Gentiles out there. I'm on the ends of the earth. My heart is overwhelmed. Anybody feel like that ever? So this is what David does. And this is what David's trying to teach us to do. Take me to a rock that's higher than I. I don't want you to answer me down here. I want you to lift me up to where you are. I want to have your perspective. I want to see what you see. I want an answer that's... Way beyond the A, B, and C options that I gave you, God. I want you to find D, E, and F, or do whatever you want to do in my life. I want you to lead me to the rock that's higher than I. David recognizes that. Verse three For you have been, and the idea here is that David knows that God has always been faithful in the past. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. He uses two little analogies there that I think are great. But I'm going to hide in your tabernacle or I'm going to abide there. I'm going to dwell there in your tabernacle. Well, it's not his tent. Tabernacle means tent. It's not his tent. We don't have this very much. but You could think of it as your house. Someone comes to your house. I'm going to abide in your house. When someone comes into my house, they automatically get hospitality. They get protection from me. No one's going to come into my house and take my guest screaming and yelling. And I'm not going to sit there in my chair saying, it's none of my business, you know. No, you protect them. Absolutely. I don't know what's going on here, but we're going to talk about this or whatever. But you you don't get to just. And that's the idea. God, I'm going to, I'm coming to your tent and I'm going to abide there. I think of Abraham and I think of Moses. Abraham housed the, well, God himself and the two angels that were heading down to um sodom and gomorrah you know to wipe out that valley um he was he's gonna you know have fellowship there get had the place of honor went out and killed the calf and and everything and and david says i want that i want to be in your tabernacle you know or could be moses you know um and that hospitality, that protection, the, the place to meet God, Moses offered that. Moses, when he was out in the wilderness and found that place, you know, he's running from Egypt. He was 40 years old, didn't know what to do, thought he was supposed to be the Messiah or something. And, and he, he kills an Egyptian and his brothers get all excited about it and say, you're going to kill us too. And oh, this thing's known, I've got to run away from Egypt, you know. And he runs away as the prince of Egypt and finds himself in the desert, but finds refuge out there in someone else's tent. He finds his wife there too. David knows that. He's using all that imagery to, de- to describe that. I'm, I don't have any place to go. I'm in the wilderness. I'm, I'm on the edges of the earth like Moses. I'm going to find my refuge there. I'm like Abraham. I want to have that. Pl- I want to be in your tent, you know, and accept your hospitality, God. I'm going to trust in the shelter of your wings. You'll protect me. Now, the wings could mean a couple things. Wings like a bird, you know, hides the hen, hides the chicks underneath him. But it could also mean inside the, well, inside that tabernacle. Remember what was embroidered on the walls and everything. The cherubim and and so on, all embroidered there. I'm going to hide there. That's a good place to hide. I mean, as we read in the book of Revelation and in Ezekiel, the description of these guys, (laughs) they're weird. I mean, they sound weird. I don't know how you write it down, but they've got four faces and they've got like six wings and they're, And they're really strong and big. And it's like, that's a good place to hide right there. I don't know what they can do, but I know if they're on my side. That's someone that's someone's good to have behind you, you know, something like that. I'm going to hide there, David says. David's trying to teach us. He wants us here in 2022, Calvary Chapel. Find that place. Go to him for that place. There's no place else to go to. There's no safer place. There's no better place. Verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years, as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him, speaking of himself, the king. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. David knows something, goes along with that same idea of you know, Saul, David, and Absalom, it's whoever God wants to be on the throne. It's whoever God wants to have the land. David knows that. David has always told the Lord, if you don't want me on the throne, I don't want to be on the throne. But if I'm supposed to be on the throne, I know that, and that's what this, these three verses, 5, 6, and 7 come into play, I know that you're going to prolong my days. Nothing can harm me as long as you want me there. He knows that. Do you know that about God, you know? you know that about yourself with him, that he's for you. He's not done with you. you know? You're not six feet under. Why is that? What does he have for you? What is he not finished with with you? Why are you still breathing? It's not because you're a decoration. We've got animals that are pasture decorations. We're learning that real quick now on the farm. That thing doesn't produce anything for us. It just sits out there and eats and eats and runs away You know, mm. well, that is not your role in God's kingdom. We're not called to be pastured decorations, you know. We're here to produce. He's called us to that. Know that. If you're still alive and breathing, guess what? You've got responsibilities and a mission. God's got that for you. David knows that. Psalm 62. This is not a prayer. This is all a statement. It's interesting. It's like he's trying to be resolute in what he knows to be true. And so he just states it. He says, truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly removed or greatly moved. Excuse me. Silently waits for God. I don't silently wait for God. I kind of whine a little bit and complain a little bit when I'm waiting for God. But David is trying to make a point here. It's good to, if God has spoken to you to truly silently wait for God to come about, to do what he wants to do. From him comes my salvation. Not only is he my salvation, he's my rock. He's also my defense. He's not just the defender. I like to think of God as my defender, but he is my defense. What I stand upon is my defense. Sometimes we think that's a liability in this day and age. If I say the name of Jesus out loud, if I talk about my Christianity or my walk with him, that's almost a liability or that's a, a weakness that they can exploit, you know. No, it's actually my defense. It's the strongest position I can have in any argument, any conversation. In my life, to be out loud about Jesus Christ is my strongest defense. Verse 3. How long will you attack a man, speaking of his enemies? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Now, we don't know and if you've got a New King James Bible, if that's what you're following along with, it's say it's it's stating that David is, or the enemy is the leaning wall or the tottering fence. That's why there's a comma. You shall be slain, all of you, comma, like a, but in other in other versions of scripture and other translations, it doesn't say that it could be the enemy that he's talking about. Both work. It doesn't matter. Both work. You're like a leaning wall if you're coming up against God because God's in my life. You're gonna lose. You're gonna tip over like a like a teetering wall. No big deal. You know. Uh, I, was, I was watching uh I don't know if it was a reel. I don't know where it was, which which uh, platform it was on a reel. And there's some there's some guy out in the middle of you know Grand Canyon or somewhere or, or, or some some national park, and he's on this rock, this giant rock, and he's doing this and he's making it move. And the caption was, "This is how this is how tourists become statistics." You know, exactly. he's doing this. The reason I bring that up is because that's, how, that's the first thing that came to my mind when he talked about this. You're like a leaning totter. It's just a matter of time. You're going to fall. You keep pushing that. You keep pushing me. You keep fighting against a man. You think you're fighting against David, the shepherd. Everybody stopped that his whole life. It's just David. It's just a, he's just a man like anybody else. Of course he is. The difference is he's a man after God's own heart. He's a, the difference is that he follows the Lord and that God is with him, that God's anointed him to do what he's doing. It isn't that he's perfect. It isn't that he doesn't make mistakes or failures or whatever. That's obvious. We've read many scriptures describing those. The fact is that God's not done with him. It's not about that. Absalom sought his dad's problems and sought the opportunity to exploit them. He says, "This is it. This is my this is my chance." David made a tremendous mistake, and it was in uh, I wrote down Chronicle uh, uh, or Second Samuel thirteen through fifteen. It's three, it's well, four chapters long. Actually, you could start before and after, and it's all about one of his sons going after the daughter, and and Absalom thought she needed to be vindicated for what this other brother did to her. And he was the guy to do it. It was really a perverted, weird whole deal. But, I mean, that family was a mess anyway with all those wives and kids and hard to keep track of everything. So you can kind of see where it would come about. Well, Absalom asked his dad, you know, what are you going to do about it? Dad says, I'm not doing anything about it, basically. This is a very, you know, short version of the story. So Absalom takes things into his own hands and goes ahead and gets this kid killed for what he did. And it seems righteous, but Absalom never got over the fact that his dad didn't do what he was supposed to do. David makes mistakes. David wasn't perfect and righteous all the time. The only difference between David and Saul was Saul was unrepentant. David was repentant. You know, David did a lot needed things, I think. I think we like him better because of the stories about him, but I mean, he did some pretty horrible things that none of us, I hope, will ever reach that level, you know? And still forgiven. But Absalom couldn't. And so Absalom just saw that as an opportunity. My dad's weak, but he didn't take into account, and never probably did, that dad was anointed by God to be the leader of that nation, regardless. And and until God removes that anointing from David, Absalom has no authority and has no ability. And also, there's two steps to that. Not only does David have to have the anointing removed from him, but God has to choose Absalom and place the anointing on him. Neither of those things took place, and that's why we have this problem. And that's why David's on the run. And so David calls him out in that verse 3. How long will you attack a man? You're all going to be slain. Everybody that comes against me, at least while I'm under this anointing, doesn't live to, to tell about it. It's almost like he's warning them and begging them. You just need to stop. The only consult to, uh, to cast him down from his high position, the only consult to cast him down from his high position That's what they think about doing is knocking them off. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. They're two-faced. Verse 5. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. So he's talking to himself. There. I actually have this circled and I have a date. um, September 8th, 2017. Five years is coming up on this verse. I don't know. Let's see what happens. But I don't know what I was waiting for or what I was praying for, but I was telling myself to be quiet is what I was telling myself to do. I quit whining. And so I circle that in my Bible. Sometimes you have to do that. I know what the right thing is. I know what scriptures say. I'm a pastor. I teach the Bible all the time. But sometimes I have to tell my soul, you need to be quiet. And you need to wait a little longer. Because you, what you don't want is a Hagar situation. You got Abram and Sarai, you know, who get promised a child, and they wait for a really long time. They were doing really well, but they, were, they couldn't wait the whole time. And so they decided to help God out by making things happen their way. And they brought this Hagar into the situation and says, here, have this promised baby from Hagar, Sarah said. And Abram didn't put much of an argument up you know and there they go and, and they've, they've had a problem with that child ever since it's never been right because they couldn't wait and so david is saying to himself you need to wait my soul waits silently for god alone for my expectation is from him he only is my rock and my salvation he is my defense i shall not be moved isn't that interesting To not give God, not only not give him a deadline in your prayer, you know, you've got till midnight on whatever to answer this prayer. Otherwise, what? I'm going to do it myself. Otherwise, I'm going to Hagar out on you, you know. David writes it down in such a way that is my only option. And if he doesn't save me, I guess I'm dead. If he doesn't save me, then I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to let this thing go. That's a big deal. That's a better prayer. He only is my rock. I have no place else to cling to. He only is my salvation. I have no other way out of this. He is my defense. I have no defense without him. And if he's without me or or has removed himself from me, so be it. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. I mean, isn't that what we've done with Jesus Christ? I have put all of my eggs into one basket. And so have you if you believe in Jesus. I have put my eternity into the egg basket of Jesus Christ. If we're wrong, we're in big trouble. But there is no plan B, there is no lifeboat. I have cut those skiffs off of my ship. I have no other place to go to. I want to do that with everything in my life, not just my salvation, but I want to live my life that way. My refuge is in God, He's my strength. Trust in him at all times, you people. There's the teaching. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And he says, Selah. He said that several times, but he wants us to pause and to think about that. Trust him at all times and pour out your heart before him. He wants to hear. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they're altogether lighter than a vapor. What is he saying? If you put your trust in God, to put your trust in a man is like putting your trust in a vapor. I mean, if God's not going to do it, I have no idea what man can do for you. It doesn't matter who they are. You could find, you know, if I don't see justice happen in the courtroom, I know some guys, you know, and they've got pipes. You know, those are the men of low degree. There's no hope there. That's not right. Uh, On the other hand, I've, I've I've got this other group of people. They're very powerful, you know. And they can do things. They can make things happen. One phone call from then. And, and it, no, you don't put your trust in that either. When I put my trust in those things, I, I, I diminish God's place in my life. He says, do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. You know, I, I always remember that. It was one of those scriptures that really spoke to me when it said that Saul, uh, Paul, had learned to be abased and learned to abound. I think most of us know how to be abased, you know, without. We've figured that out. But so many have not learned how to abound. It changes them. It turns them into something, well, it's kind of gross. You can just see it. There's an arrogance. There's a pride that shows up. When money comes into someone's life unexpectedly or unearned, or they put way too much emphasis on it, it's, it's, well, it's those things. We're warned about that in Scripture, that, that money should not bring us joy and pleasure or to have that place in our life. It's something, it's a tool. You know. Oh, if only, if only I win this, if only I got that, if only I get this, you know, eh. If he gives it, he gives it. I can't put my hope or security in money. It goes away just as fast as it comes. Anybody that's ever done overtime at a factory knows exactly what I'm talking about. Saturday overtime—they're luring me with Saturday overtime. Honey, this is it. The vacation money's going to start rolling. Guess what? You know, the alternator goes out on the car. You know, and there goes your wonderful, good thing. You and then you think to yourself, and this is how you justify it: It's a good thing I did overtime. We wouldn't have a new alternator. That's not why you did over, overtime. You wanted that vacation, you know. Now, be content don't let it make you pride or prideful or arrogant. Don't set your heart on them, David says. David's, do you talk about struggling to keep yourself grounded? I don't know how much he struggled, but if someone kept themselves grounded, it was David, a shepherd boy, the least of seven sons. I mean, you know how many guys got to get married between, before you get your turn? kind of thing. That's how they did things back then. And you're the guy out there when the when the prophet is laying hands on people to bless him. And do I get to come watch or something? No, someone's got to watch the sheep. I mean, he's the lowest of the low. And all of a sudden he's king of Israel? You got to watch your heart. God has spoken once, verse 11, twice I have heard this, and that's a, a poetic way um, that, the, um, that the Hebrews would write. Pay attention to this. That power belongs to God. It's God. Just like the land belongs to him and he can hand it out to whoever he wants to. Same with power. He hands it out to whomever he wants. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Not a prayer in there. All of it's statement. Doesn't ask God for a thing. Just simply talks about how wonderful God is and who he is in David's life. It's good to spend some time in prayer. And I mean that in the sense that when we pray or speak with God, to have those moments too, and then walk away from the prayer time, you know, without some like uh, PS, by the way, I could use this, you know, kind of thing at the end, you know, just proclaim who he is and how wonderful he is in your life and just let that be, you know, that's today's prayer. Just telling you how great you are. David builds himself up when he reminds himself of who God is in his life. And so will you. You'll be encouraged. The fearful things out there aren't so fearful. The mysterious things aren't so scary anymore. All of a sudden, you've got your eyes up. You're thinking about who you are in him, who he is in your life. You think about eternity. You think about how you started and where you are now. And all of a sudden, eh, the thing I was going to ask you for, whatever, I've got you. Let's pray. But we thank you for your word. It's encouraging. It's something we can stand upon. We thank you for David's heart that even while on the run from his own son, who's trying to murder him so he can take his throne to usurp the authority and the power, he has this kind of conversation with you. He has this stability in his relationship with you. There's no place else to go. There's no one else to go to. There's no hope anywhere else. He has truly placed his life in your hands. Regardless, regardless of the circumstances in his life, he is as close to you as he ever has been. God, we want that. We want to have that in our lives. We're not asking for troubles. We know that you'll do that if you want to. If you want to bring us to that place, that's fine. Whatever you want to do, it's, we've given our lives to you. But however you can teach us or whatever you need to do to teach us, Lord, help us to always be not moved, as David has said that several times through these scriptures. He's not going to be moved away from you is the idea, but we don't want to be moved by our circumstances. So, Lord, we we speak to our souls now. We'll wait silently for you. We'll trust in you. Our refuge is in you. We're under your wings. We're in your tent. All the things that were spoken of, we want to be there, Lord, as close to you as possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.